Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the devastating testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson, a White House insider who witnessed Trump's actions on the days preceding January the 6th and on that day as the chief aide to Trump's chief of staff. Joining us to discuss the pile of incriminating evidence against Trump that was just added to today from a first-hand witness to the treasonous activities of an unhinged and lawless president leading a coup is Paul Campos, a professor at the University of Colorado Law School. He writes for both popular and academic audiences and has been a vocal critic of the American legal system in numerous articles and essays and in books such as Against the Law and Jurismania, The Madness of American Law, and he blogs at Lawyers, Guns and Money. Then, following Ms. Hutchinson's description of Trump trying to strangle the head of his Secret Service security detail and having tantrums throwing dishes and splattering ketchup over the walls inside the White House, we will speak with Lance Dodis, a training and supervising analyst emeritus with the Boston Psychoanalytics Society and Institute, who was a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard's Medical School. Dr. Dodis is a contributing editor along with 36 other psychiatrists and mental health experts who have contributed to the new book Assessing President Trump, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President, updated and expanded with new essays. Then finally we'll get an update on the G7 summit that just ended and the NATO summit in Madrid which just began and speak with Daniel Treisman a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, a leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia. He is the author of numerous books on Russia, including The New Autocracy, Information, Politics and Policy in Putin's Russia, and Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. We will discuss his article at CNN, What Putin and She Don't Get About Messy Democracy. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Paul Campos, who's a professor at the University of Colorado Law School. He writes for both popular and academic audiences and has been a focal critic of the American legal system in numerous articles and essays and in the books such as Against the Law and Jurismania, The Madness of American Law, and he blogs at Lawyers, Guns and Money. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Campos. Good to to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Paul. And uh, Donald Trump has been one one step ahead of the sheriff all of his uh, professional life and his political life. And today's testimony by Cassidy Hutchinson, the former aide to Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, described a lawless man with absolutely no sense of 
decency and justice, who actually was perfectly happy to have his vice president lynched by a mob who didn't mind having his followers armed with assault rifles because they weren't going to use them against him. They're going to use them against the Capitol and against, presumably against Mike Pence and others as he exhorted them to march on the Capitol. And then when his Secret Service detail in the big limo they called the Beast, he thought they were going to drive him towards the Capitol so he could be with the mob, which he promised he would at the rally. And when he realized that they were going back to the White House, he tried to grab the steering wheel of the beast they call the big limo. And then when the Secret Service head of his detail tried to reason with him, Trump, in a fury, tried to strangle the guy. And this, these are the people that are the, <laughs> that were dedicated to protecting the life of the president. They're being strangled by this madman. So what's wrong with the American justice system? I mean, you can ask the question I should ask before that is how the hell did this guy ever get elected? But just skipping over that, what is wrong with our justice system? The evidence against this man is overwhelming. I think what's wrong is pretty simple, actually, and that can just be summed up by the word cowardice. I think that Merrick Garland uh, doesn't have the guts to bring the indictment against Donald Trump that the evidence overwhelmingly justifies bringing. Uh, he doesn't want to do it um, for reasons that have to do, I think, probably more than anything else with a fear of being perceived as uh, some kind of a political prosecution. Uh, this is supposedly you know, how things go in banana republics, where the new regime uh, turns the legal process onto uh, its political opponents, who they've just defeated, um, and so forth. Um, those are valid concerns in the abstract and in the larger picture. But in the end, the question is, are you going to allow the most brazen and uh, unambiguous criminality of the most severe form, you know, violent sedition of the, of the United States government, which clearly now was planned in advance with uh, great, I wouldn't say care exactly, since uh, carefulness is not part of Donald Trump's, uh, you know, over, as it were. Nevertheless, um, with great uh, sort of malignancy and forethought. And uh, are you going to let those kinds of crimes go unprosecuted because you're afraid of looking um, political? Well, I mean, not prosecuting under these circumstances is also obviously a political act, and it's a political act of gross irresponsibility. And Joe Biden should fire Merrick Garland tomorrow if Merrick Garland doesn't indict Donald Trump. This has gone on too long. These hearings have thrown into the starkest possible relief how utterly irresponsible the DOJ's process has, has, has been to this point. Uh, because all of the excuses that so many people have put forward for the DOJ that you have to have a carefully worked out and, and a meticulous investigation, you have to work your way up the chain, you have to flip people in order to get to the, you know, the big dogs at the top. You know, all of those excuses are obviously um, 
completely uh, bankrupt at this point. Everything is out on the table. Everything could not be more obvious than it is. Donald Trump is a criminal of the first order, as are his henchmen, and um, they all need to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Well, they know they're guilty because Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows both asked Trump for pardons, as did a whole bunch of others. I mean, and along with seditious conspiracy and obstructing the work of the government, of the Congress, at the very end of today's hearings, um, Liz Cheney, the co-chair, indicated that there's also witness tampering that's been going on. And she, you know, she didn't get into details. It was kind of a tease. But she made it clear that people in the Trump circle, it could even be Trump himself, were leaning on witnesses, telling them not to rat on the boss. Yeah, no, it's straight mafia um, tactics. Except in this case, you know, mafia bosses usually don't just commit their crimes on national TV, which is why it's necessary to uh, flip some people. Uh, but in this case, uh, the crimes were committed on national TV. Uh, and while we're learning all kinds of interesting and horrifying details behind the scenes, uh, as we did today, the broad outlines have been extremely clear since the very day that the uh, insurrection took place. And uh, it is simply uh, unacceptable at this point for the American legal system to continue to stand by and to let all these people get away with it, which I want to emphasize they, have con they continue to do to this very day. The only people who have been prosecuted are a bunch of minnows, a bunch of underlings, a bunch of you know, street thugs, essentially, while the men uh, and uh, a few women who planned this thing at the highest levels uh, in the most uh, conspiratorial and uh, illegal way um, uh, still remain essentially untouched by the forces of the American legal system. And again, I'm speaking with Paul Campos, who's a professor at the University of Colorado Law School. He writes for both popular and academic audiences and has been a vocal critic of the American legal system in numerous articles and essays and in books such as Against the Law and Jurismania, The Madness of American Law. And he blogs at Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So, obviously, what the Select Committee is doing is they're handing a case to Merrick Garland on a platter, and they're building on it, and they built on it today even more with, a, with an unexpected extra hearing. They say they're going to have more hearings. What you're saying, though, Paul, is enough already, right? You don't think <laughs> they need to gild the lily here, right? Yeah, I mean, at some point, you have to add, I mean, uh, it, it has become extremely evident that Merrick Garland doesn't have what it takes to do the necessary job right now. And Joe Biden made a big mistake, the biggest of his presidency, by naming Merrick Garland the attorney general. But uh, Merrick Garland serves at the pleasure of the president. He can be fired today for any reason. And uh, he has provided the best possible reason, which is that he's failing at the most important aspect of his job. And there are many, many superbly qualified people who would be uh, ready, willing, and able to step into his shoes and to do the job that needs to be done. And that job is to indict Donald Trump and all of his henchmen. And Joe Biden needs to make that the top priority of his administration because it is the most important thing that needs to be done in American politics today. 
So I'm sure others would argue, though, Paul, that if Biden were to do that, then it would look political. It would look that Biden wants have Trump indicted as opposed to wants the uh, evidence to be followed. So that clearly would be the response of a, of a number of people. So is it worth uh, keeping him on in the sense that if he's so cautious, he perhaps can win over centrists or independents and sensible Republicans who aren't MAGA folk? Is there is there anything to that strategy? In other words, you know, the people on, on the left already know what a disaster Trump is. The people on the far right in the Fox bubble don't have a clue because they're lied to constantly and they're kept in the dark by propaganda. So you're not, you're not left with a lot, except in this country, independents happen to be the biggest political bloc. Um, yeah, supposedly, although, of course, a lot of independents are um, actually fairly predictable in terms of their political orientation. They just like to call themselves independents. I mean, I do think that the pragmatic question you know, has been a fair one for a long time, and I don't think it would have been a good idea for, for uh, the Biden administration to be indicting the uh, ringleaders of January uh, 6th on, say, January 21st or something. But 19 months later... Uh, is way too long a period of time, given how copious the evidence has always been, uh, and uh, you know, and, and 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 continues to accumulate. Now, of course, some people will scream bloody murder that if you were to replace Merrick Garland because you needed somebody who was actually more willing to to do what needs to be done in terms of justice and in terms of enforcing the law, but those people are going to scream no matter what. And other people, such as myself, uh, and lots and lots of other people, are going to scream about the failure to indict in a situation in which uh, it, the, uh, the, the evidence requiring such an indictment is so overwhelming that a failure to indict is itself a grotesquely political act. No ordinary person in anything like this situation would escape indictment. I mean, it's just it's, it's sort of preposterous to even contemplate that. Um, committing an egregious, incredibly serious crime in the most open and brazen way with just reams and reams of evidence backing exactly how you went about committing that crime. Uh, to imagine that the authorities would just you know, spend 19 months thinking about, well, do, do we really have enough evidence to indict here? Uh, no, that's, of course, the, that's not never been the question. The question has always been, uh, does the uh, Biden administration and the DOJ have the stomach to enforce the law in this circumstance? And either they do or they don't. And right now they don't. And I am actually just completely disgusted by the failure of the Department of Justice to do its job in these circumstances. Uh, and that's ultimately on Merrick Garland, but then that's ultimately on Joe Biden, because Merrick Garland works for Joe Biden. And this isn't a question of Joe Biden telling uh, Merrick Garland to go after somebody. This is a question of Joe Biden telling Merrick Garland to enforce the United States Code which very clearly makes what Donald Trump did a very serious crime. So is there a similarity then with what's, what happened in New York, where you had some of the best prosecutors possible working for Morgenthau, the DA, including a guy that was a specialist on the RICO statutes? They built a case against Trump, a criminal case, and then for some reason or other they didn't act on it when they had a grand jury impaneled. And then the new DA comes along and then drops the whole case altogether. The, 
the lawyers on the case, the very highly respected lawyers, go public and say it's an outrage. But we've never learned why Alvin Bragg, the new DA in, in uh, Manhattan, dropped the case in the first place. So it, that sort of smack, smacks of maybe somebody got to him. Um, well, yes. I mean, it looks terrible. And it's, it's just it's an absolute outrage. And I can't imagine how any person in the legal profession can see this as anything other than an indictment of the legal profession for a failure to enforce the law when somebody is sufficiently politically powerful to um, not have the law applied to them. Um, the, this, um, the, you know, there's, uh, there's a, a series, I don't know whether it's still run anymore, that was uh, something that Slate magazine called uh, something like If It Happened There, where essentially U.S. political news was reported as if it were happening in a foreign country. I mean, what's happening right now is sort of the, 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 the sort of platonic ideal of such a, 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 a situation, right? You have, you have something that if it were happening in any other country, we would immediately recognize it as the most complete corruption and abdication and failure of the rule of law. But somehow there are a lot of centrists and uh, moderates and people who are maybe sort of, you know, a little bit on the, 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 the right wing of the Democratic Party or the left wing of the Republican Party who are looking at all this and still sort of twiddling their thumbs and saying, well, it's really difficult to do anything in this kind of a situation. Uh, yes, it is difficult, but what the right thing to do is, is completely uh, self-evident. And again, it's just outrageous that these people are not being indicted. And that, you know, that's the bottom line. So going forward, then, it's your expectation, I take it, Paul, that you don't think Garland is going to step up to the plate. But assuming that there's enough pressure on him, which there certainly will be from the members of the committee, and I think that one of the most prominent members, of course, is the Republican co-chair, Liz Cheney. Do you think they have sufficient weight, along with the Democratic base, to put pressure on the DOJ? Uh, I mean, I would love to be proven wrong, but I think the answer is no. And I think because Merrick Garland is this thoroughgoing institutionalist to a fault, uh, he's going to go down with the ship. He's not going to allow himself to uh, to be to be given the the. Uh, impression that he's being pressured into doing anything. Uh, I, I'm, I would be surprised at this point if, if, if Donald Trump is indicted by Merrick Garland. I would love to be wrong, but I would be very surprised. If I were Joe Biden, um, I wouldn't take the chance. I don't think Biden, obviously Biden can't like sit down with Garland and ask him what he intends to do in regard to prosecuting Donald Trump. That would be highly improper. But what he can do is he can say it's time for new leadership at DOJ. And that's just, you know, we, that's the president's prerogative. And, you know, it needs to be used in a, um, in a sparing and thoughtful kind of way. But uh, in this circumstance, which is an absolute constitutional crisis of the first order, uh, you can't have someone like Merrick Garland making the ultimate decision because Merrick Garland is living in a fantasy land where his you know, belief in institutions and guardrails and you know, the, the procedural protections of the American legal system is just leading to this catastrophic failure. Well, Paul Campus, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you for having me.
And again, I've been speaking with Paul Campos, who's a professor at the University of Colorado Law School. He writes for both popular and academic audiences and has been a vocal critic of the American legal system in numerous articles and essays and in books such as Against the Law and Jurismania, The Madness of American Law, and he blogs at Lawyers, Guns, and Money. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with a leading psychiatrist about Cassidy Hutchinson's description of Trump trying to strangle the head of his Secret Service security detail and having tantrums throwing dishes and splattering ketchup over the walls of the White House. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lance Dotis, who's a training and supervising analyst emeritus with the Boston Psychiatric Society and, and Institute, who was a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Dotis is a contributor, along with 36 other psychiatrists and mental health experts, who have contributed to a book assessing President Trump, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 37 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess a president, updated and expanded in new essays. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lance Dotis. Thank you, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Lance. And we've spoken in the past about Trump's mental health and his um, behavior. And I've, I can't tell you how many times I've tried to make the point that if you could ever get a, a camera inside the Oval Office during his tenure and to see how he actually behaves, the American people would be appalled. The scales would come off the eyes of the MAGA people as well. And a little bit of that happened today with the testimony from the uh, former chief aide to the chief of staff, Mark Meadows. So what kind of impact do you think it's going to have? Well, I think the people that already were aware of how troubled uh, very, very troubled Trump is, and the people who are aware that his actions were traitorous will be uh, unchanged because uh, there's nothing new there in that sense. I think independents may be swayed. I hope that they are. But the people that are in a, essentially a cult-like following of Donald Trump will ignore it the way Trump does. They will do what Trump does, which is to say, if you disagree with me or offend me, then you are both wrong and evil. And, uh, you know, it's it's fake news if you're accusing me of something. Um, and yeah, I don't think they'll, I don't think they're ever going to change. Um, so there's always been a core of people who are unchangeable, uh, just as there was a core of people in Germany who followed Hitler and a core of people in Russia who followed Stalin and so forth. Um, but we don't have to have 100% agreement so I hope it'll do something good. Well, Cassidy Hutchinson, the former aide to Donald Trump's final chief of staff, Mark Meadows, she's already being attacked, of course, by Trump on his social media platform. Sure. But much of what she said was, you know, so shocking. Just, it's just unbelievable how what a criminal 
this man is and what his criminal instincts are and how he has no concept of justice or law or decency or humanity. I mean, he is so clearly such a sociopath. When he was told by the Secret Service at the, at the rally on the ellipse that there were armed people out there, he wanted them to come in and make the crowd look bigger. And he said, you know, I don't effing care if they have weapons. They are not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags, the magatometers away. Let my people in. They can march to the capital from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. Um, I mean, the first thing that she talked about was how on January the 2nd, when she was walking Giuliani to his car at the, at the White House, on the White House grounds, Giuliani said it's going to be incredible, you know, on January the 6th. It's just going to be wild. A great day is what he said, apparently. So then you've got this other extraordinary scene that she talked about where he's, Trump wanted to go, to, he promised the marchers that he would go to the Capitol with them. And as he was leaving the ellipse after he gave his speech there and rallied the crowd to fight like hell and march on the Capitol, he got into the limo and it started to go to the White House instead of to take him up to, towards the Capitol. And he had a hissy fit and tried to grab the steering wheel of his secret, the big limo they call the Beast. And then when his top Secret Service aide who was in the Beast with him tried to reason with him, Trump tried to strangle his head of his, his Secret Service security detail. So this is pretty unusual behavior for anybody, let alone a president of the United States, surely. Well, uh, let me go back to when you said it was shocking, because I think that's, that's the key here. People who don't understand that Donald Trump is not like other human beings, he's very different. He's just you know, you could almost say he's not a human being, or see, he is biologically, but he is so different from the norm. He is so sick. He, he has a psychotic core. He's a sociopath. All of that that we've been saying for years is all is all true. So if you start out with that, if I were to say, look, this man is no different from a, a predatory animal, uh, not a human, and of course, he will attack and do whatever he uh, thinks is in his own personal interest. And it, it just doesn't matter who else is hurt or maimed or injured or killed or whatever. It doesn't matter. So if you start out with that, which is where I'm at and, and where I hope many people are at, it's not shocking. I'm not, you know, it's, it's good to hear about this to get it out. But it doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I mean, we already knew that he wanted to kill Pence. He would have been happy to have Pence killed, you know. He would kill anybody. He is the same psychology as a, any serial murderer. He happens not to murder people himself with his bare hands, although he sounds like he came close, uh, or at least he tried to come close this time. But that's who he is. So, you know, I'm glad this is all coming out. And I, your point is, is, I think, right. You know, people maybe will finally see the, see the daylight and they'll stop drinking the Kool-Aid, we hope. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a question of understanding that this is, person is basically not human in the sense of humanity as, some, as, a, uh, as a, a, an entity who cares about, who is able to understand other people, who can have some empathy, and who is not uh, sadistic, you know. 
but that's who Trump is. And again, I'm speaking with Lance Dotis, a training and supervising analyst emeritus with the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute, who was a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Dotis is a contributor, along with 36 other psychiatrists and mental health experts who have contributed to a book assessing President Trump, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President, updated and expanded with new essays. But Lance, I have a bit of a problem in the sense that if you say that Donald Trump is mentally ill, then automatically you should feel sympathy towards him because mentally ill people, you know, need our sympathy. They can't be ostracized and and, uh, they need treatment. Sure. So isn't he just a really bad human being? Walk us through that distinction. Yes, I think you've said it exactly right. So the... When we think of people who have mental mental illness, first of all, everybody has some troubles, right? So I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about what we would call neurotic difficulties, problems of dealing with uh, with life, relationships, all of that. I'm not talking about that, and neither, I think, are you. So that's one thing. But the people who really deserve the title mentally ill and, and who deserve our help, you're absolutely right, are people who have one of the few uh, number of major mental illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, used to be called manic depressive illness. So those people have a biological disorder, and it's sort of not their fault if they hear, you know, voices or they have delusions or they're manic or they get severely depressed. Not that fault is the issue, but you know what I'm saying. These people, of course, deserve our treatment. But there's another class of kinds of problems. If you leave aside the kind of neurotic difficulties and you put on one side and you leave aside the, uh, the biologically psychotic illnesses like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, in the middle, there are people who have what are called character disorders. That's different. And that falls, that's where the, the dividing line occurs. When, so a lot of people do have character disorders. The difference between that and a... Uh, you know, let's say a, uh, a particular set of symptoms, uh, whether it's compulsive behavior, addictive behavior, um, you know, um, phobias. The difference is that uh, people with characterological disorders, it's their entire character. That's why we call them that. You could call it a personality disorder. It's something about the whole way that they live in the world. Most of the folks like that are not at all harmful to, uh, to other people. They may be a handful in terms of their relatedness. But, you know, you wouldn't say that they're bad. They are, they are just uh, across the board troubled in the way they relate to the world and the way they understand the world. And they often are hard to, uh, to, to reason with, you might say. But the distinction is sometimes people have this psychopathy or sociopathy where the fundamental character disorder is so severe that it sets them apart from all other character disorders. And what sets them apart is this complete absence of a normal function. They don't have a conscience. It doesn't matter to them what happens to other people. They are lacking something that is normal. And that's not true of people with other character disorders. You know, you can have, you can be uh, uh, paranoid even uh, without having, without loss of a conscience. But there are few people who really do fit into the category of being evil. You know, and 
the word is not in the psychological uh, nomenclature, but it's apt. So there are certain people who are so different from the rest of humanity that we have to treat them and think of them differently, like a serial killer. So that's who Trump is. He is untreatable. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, you can have as much sympathy for the fact that he was obviously raised by uh, awful parents. But at this point, he has left the realm of normal human behavior and normal humanity uh, so if he weren't president, obviously he would have been arrested long ago for inciting this riot and for being uh, treasonous. But then you would put him in jail because there's no point in doing anything else, but you have to protect the public. Well, just in the last few minutes then, Lance, Cassidy Hutchinson described going into the president's private dining room off, his off, off the Oval Office where he spent a lot of time watching TV and he apparently had seen or seen the reports of what Bill Barr had said to the Associated Press, basically saying there's nothing wrong with the elections, that they couldn't find any fault with them and that Biden clearly won. And apparently he had a total tantrum, threw his lunch plates at the walls and there was ketchup splattered all over the place. And she went on to say that it was fairly routine that he would have tantrums and rip the tablecloth off the table and have all of the White House crockery shattered around the floor and around the table. So this is a description of a, a, like a, a two-year-old, isn't it, having tantrums? Well, y yes and no. Two-year-olds are much healthier than Donald Trump. I mean, it's, it's a normal developmental phase because they haven't had a chance to learn and their brain is not developed. So I, I, it's unfair to two-year-olds to compare them to Donald Trump. Donald Trump, this is what I, uh, this is the other confusion that's been going on for years. He has a psychotic core. It's not the same as, you know, hearing uh, voices or thinking that the people on Mars are talking to you. It's not that kind of thing. Uh, that's more associated with the biological disorder, schizophrenia. But, but the fact that he falls apart, that he has what you're calling a tantrum, is that you finally you get a breakthrough of this thick veneer of normality, uh, this thick veneer of, that the good sociopath, the successful sociopaths have to act like they're normal and they're actually caring about somebody when they don't care about anybody, right? So it breaks through, and then you see this violent, completely unhinged, unrealistic, out of control, um, you know, self-centered uh, psychosis. And then it heals over. Not, he doesn't really heal. I'm sorry, that's the wrong word. It covers over again, and he's back to being the smiling, uh, allegedly reasonable person. But at those moments, you see what is really there in him, and that's what's always there. And that's why it shouldn't be shocking to see that uh, being uh, manifested in all of his other behaviors. But what is shocking, Lance, is that all of those White House aides and cabinet members saw this all along from day one. And that includes the generals uh, who quit. And the worst person of all, it seems, is Mark Meadows, who comes across as being absolutely supine, dis despicable, cowardly, wouldn't uh, stop Trump. You know, Trump apparently didn't want to listen to anybody. He just wanted more violence. Uh, and he was perfectly happy to see Mike Pence hanged. And all of the other uh, White House aides that had some conscience, like the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone 
were begging Meadows to intervene with Trump, and he refused. It's it's absolutely, it's not just Trump. There's a sort of sickness in the land, a sickness amongst, even more so amongst his supporters who know who he is and how he behaves. Uh, you maybe can excuse all the people out there in Magaland because they they watch Fox News and have no idea about who this guy really is. But the people around him, uh, some of them are just disgraceful. Oh, absolutely. Many of them, I think, are disgraceful. Many of them. And Fox News is disgraceful. You know, the media contributed to this for years. Not you. You were a bright exception. But, you know, think of all those press conferences when he used to have press conferences and he would yell at respected uh, reporters telling them that they were fake news working for a fake agency. I mean, at that point... The, all of the media should have stood up and said there is something desperately inadequate about this man, desperately uh, cruel, sadistic, evil, out of touch with reality, however you wanted to put it. And we will not put up with it. It should have been a headline every day, really, that we have a, uh, a man who uh, has no uh, respect for democracy. He's actually he's literally anti-democracy because he wants to be a tyrant. That should have been the headline every day that he was president. But, you know, people put up with it because I think of the same kind of thing we were saying before. We kind of expect we're not prepared to see a, a, a monster as the president. You know, we're supposed to respect the president, you know. And most of them, whether they're good or bad, are deserving of at least some respect. But not him. And we just were caught off guard. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's sort of like Germany when Hitler came to power. People thought he, Hitler was a joke, you know, until he took power. Well, I, you know, I think the country will either grow up from this and recognize that there's evil in the land, uh, or, uh, you know, the democracy will be over. Well, Lance Dotis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Certainly, it's my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Lance Dotis, who's a training and supervising analyst emeritus with the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute who was his clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Dotis is a contributor, along with 36 other psychiatrists and mental health experts who have contributed to the book Assessing President Trump, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President, updated and expanded with new essays. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an update on the G7 summit that has just ended and the NATO summit in Madrid, which has just begun. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Daniel Treisman, a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, a leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia. He's the author of a number of books on Russia, including The New Autocracy, Information, Politics, and Policy in Putin's Russia, and Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. And he has an article at CNN, What Putin and She Don't Get About Messy Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Treisman. Thanks. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And we saw 
the messy democracies get together at the G7 summit in just outside of Munich, and now President Biden's moved on to the NATO summit in Madrid. So let's start with the, the G7. What kind of consensus do you think they came up with? Because they did talk about putting a cap on Russian oil, but didn't really agree to it. But they made sounds like they're going to stick it out. And it looks as though Ukraine is at a very critical moment in its survival as a country, because Russia is throwing everything they can at them and and murdering civilians in the most disgusting and indiscriminate way. And it looks as if Putin is not interested in any kind of negotiation. He wants to win, and he'll stay in it for the long haul as long as he's alive. And um, it would seem to me that at this point, any calls to negotiate with with Putin seem ridiculous in the sense that I don't think he's he's interested in negotiating. He's interested in victory, and somebody has to stop this monster. Well, yeah, absolutely, and I think uh, you know. Thank goodness that he's so good at continually dramatizing the threat that the West needs now to respond to. Uh, so uh, as all the Western leaders are getting together, he, his troops uh, bomb this uh, shopping mall in Kremenchuk uh, and continue com- to commit all these atrocities, clearly firing at uh, civilians. Um, I had been worried uh, in recent weeks that the French and the Germans were starting to sound a little bit divided, a little bit softer uh, on their commitment to Ukraine. And uh, there have been a lot of problems with actually getting the uh, arms to Ukraine at the appropriate time uh, as fast as as necessary. But uh, they sounded pretty united at least on in the statements at the at the summit uh, talking about uh, sticking with Ukraine for as long as it takes I wish they would also say uh, sticking with Ukraine uh, and providing the weapons as fast as we can uh, because that's the real crucial thing as as you said uh, the war is is uh, at the moment it's grinding along slowly but it's I mean the front line is moving to Russia's advantage. Uh, further out, they've almost completely controlled uh, Luhansk now and uh, most of Donetsk. So the Ukrainians urgently need those weapons. It's not just a matter of, of uh, the West staying committed to them. It's also a matter of the West organizing to get the weapons over there right away. Well, you mentioned the Germans. I mean, uh, Schultz, of course, was the uh the host of the summit in, in Munich, um, but his foreign policy advisor recently said that it's just as important to deal with Russia as it is to supply arms to Kiev. And the Germans have been, they're saying the right things, but apparently they're still slow walking the delivery of weapons. And that seems to be, we've heard the story from day one that, you know, Zelensky is screaming for help and they kind of dawdle in and finally send weapons piecemeal. So, I, you know, there's no way of knowing exactly what kind of situation the Ukrainian army is in. So did you I, think that the summit yeah. did anything to close that gap? Well, I think every time that the, the West gets together and there's a lot of news coverage, then that creates a bit more pressure. Uh, on the Germans uh, to uh, go along with the very strong consensus of the West 
Um, but then, you know, when there, there isn't as much attention, uh, all these traditional divisions of opinion within Germany come out again. And the, uh, especially in Schultz's party, the SPD, there's uh, factions that uh, are just uh, having a really hard time adjusting uh, to this new policy. They've always been committed to trying to find understanding with, with Russia and cooperate with Russia and to minimize uh, military involvements. Um, so, yeah, we heard that really quite bizarre statement from Jens Plötner, the advisor to Schultz, saying that uh, uh, he was a bit tired of how everybody kept talking about uh, the needs of Ukraine uh, and wasn't the future of relations with Russia also an exciting question. Uh, I don't know what he really had in mind, but it certainly sounded uh, like a softening uh, of German policy, or at least it exposed those divisions. So I think that the uh, summit is really important, and it's really important that behind the scenes, uh, Biden is uh, really trying to uh, push people to stick to the hardline commitments that they made from the beginning and, and not to go soft. I think it's very helpful that in the nick of time, uh, the Swedes and the Finns managed to do this deal with the Turks so that Turkey is no longer uh, objecting to the admission of uh, Sweden and Finland to, to NATO. Uh, that's definitely a very positive development, and it uh, also creates uh, a sense of momentum and uh, achievement behind these summits. Indeed, it's a bit of a surprise that Turkey's authoritarian uh, leader, Erdogan, announced this deal at, at the beginning of the NATO summit in Madrid. It's almost like somebody <laughs> must have talked to him behind the scenes. But just to finish up on Ukraine and Russia... My fear, Daniel, is that that the people around, the hawks in particular around Putin, like Nikolai Patrushev, uh, his national security advisor and others, and maybe Putin himself, really want a new Cold War. The original Cold War, the Soviet Union, a communist empire, which was a kind of police, secret police and military state pretending to be an economy, now the economy's gone away because it was unrealistic and didn't work. Now they've got a capitalist economy. But they also have a country that's essentially run by the secret police, which is, and of course, where Putin comes from. So these guys, as much as they're a bunch of kleptocrats, my feeling is that maybe this, a new Cold War, the isolation of Russia, people rallying around the flag, that's going to keep them in power even longer. Is that... Uh, too pessimistic? How, how, what do you think of that scenario? Well, I, I think that's that's a, a real fear. Um, and clearly, that's what they are aiming for at the moment is just to really circle wagons uh, and uh, concentrate on domestic economy and exploit this uh, sense of threat from the outside world. Uh, I think it's unsustainable. And I think it'll prove unsustainable sooner rather than later because the economy, uh, we haven't really seen the full effect of, of the sanctions yet and of, of just the poor management of the economy uh, and the critical state of the economy. I think that'll become clearer later in the year. And I think uh, we're going to see more domestic resistance despite the uh, really much more extreme repression uh, that the, uh, as you say, the security police and, and uh, uh, all the law enforcement agencies have been uh, stepping up. 
So uh, I think it's it's not really sustainable, um, but uh, it's hard to see uh, how how Russia gets out of that without uh, some kind of really disruptive change of regime. Uh, so yes, uh, I think we have to be afraid of that. We have to work to make that less likely by keeping the pressure on and by not letting Putin succeed in Ukraine, which of course would uh, give a great boost to the nationalists and uh, the the advocates of the Cold War. The new Cold War. And do you think yes. we're, we're already in a new Cold War? I mean, um, it feels as if it's already began. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, there's no there's no real possibility for any kind of cooperation with uh, Russia under Putin. There's enormous opportunities and potential uh, for improvement of relations if the regime changes, uh, obviously depending on what the new regime looks like. But under Putin, I, I think we're in a cold war. There's, and we have to keep it cold. I mean, that's the already. Uh, you know, there's a lot of this fighting in Europe, which didn't actually occur during the Cold War. So, uh, yeah, it's a cold war at the very least, uh, and we have to adjust to that, as as NATO is doing quite quickly with the announcements of massive increases of ready forces uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, and yeah, it's just the reality at this point, whether we like it or not. So in terms of your article at CNN, what Putin and she don't get about messy democracy, she is sticking with Putin. I don't know why she's not being challenged more about his mantra about respecting sovereignty, because every time anybody criticizes human rights in China, he, he gets a, has a hissy fit about respecting our sovereignty. So he's he's always talked about sovereignty. Do you think that Biden should have framed this Russian aggression against Ukraine more in terms of an attack on a country's sovereignty as opposed to an attack on a democracy? I think you could do both. And perhaps he should have done more of the uh, of emphasizing the sovereignty point, because that's that's the framing that will appeal uh, really to potentially almost all the world. Uh, whereas the defending democracy uh, framing, of course, only uh, only really works for countries that uh, uh, are democracies, want to be democracies, and and view democracies as generally uh, easier to live with than authoritarian regimes. So I think you could phrase it, uh, you could frame it as really about both. Um, but uh, the most obvious and striking and shocking aspect of the invasion is just the, the nature of it as pure aggression, unprovoked aggression. And I think all states uh, uh, have uh, an immediate uh, interest in preventing or, or preserving the regime in which uh, wars of unprovoked aggression simply don't take place. So yeah, I think the uh, the the framing of sovereignty, especially with regard to China, uh, would be a, uh, the, the best way to uh, to approach this. But China is now buying Russian oil, and Putin is making more money than ever because of the price of oil has been driven up by right. the war that he started. So it's almost like crime pays. Yeah, and the, the oil problem is a serious one because, yeah, they sell less oil, but because of the disruption, the price has gone up. So the, the revenue remains very high, even higher than last year. 
uh, and uh, that's why uh, in the West people are trying to come up with innovative solutions like putting a cap uh, on oil prices uh, or uh, making it harder for Russia to sell oil to anybody by uh, focusing on the insurance market for shipping the oil out. Um, but that's that's an obstacle to overcome. Um, uh, but uh, in terms of the relationship with China, uh, it's not going to be easy to to undermine that because she and Putin, uh, their views are so aligned in terms of the geopolitics of the current world and the need to oppose the West. Um, I think in, in uh, the details, there are ways to try and drive a wedge and, and pick China off. Uh, and clearly, China is very concerned about not directly violating sanctions or becoming subject even to secondary sanctions uh, just because their economy is so still intertwined uh, with Europe and uh, with the U.S. Uh, so there are there are opportunities for using that. Uh, that economic leverage uh, to try and limit China's involvement, but that hasn't worked very well so far because of, you know, Xi's uh, determination to stand up for uh, or to try to build a kind of alliance against uh, the U.S. geopolitical presence around the world. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, then, uh, Daniel Treisman, uh, China's also made a lot of efforts and inroads into Africa. And it's the Russians who are preventing the, well, they, first of all, they're stealing uh, Ukrainian grain, but the Ukrainians can't export because of the blockade. And apparently Africa is the, is the continent that's being impacted most on the lack of grain because of the, they were used to Ukrainian grain. And on top of that, fertilizer comes from both Ukraine and Russia and a lot of poor countries need fertilizers because their soil is marginal. So is there any way that the Chinese can be pulled over or that you know, you're supporting a country that's starving your friends in Africa? Uh, uh, I don't know. I, that, that would, uh, I, I hope so. Um, we've seen already, I think, the countries that are most vulnerable uh, to the food crisis, countries like uh, Kenya, uh, East Africa, uh, have been uh, less positive about about Russia. Other countries uh, which have corrupt relations with with Russia and with uh, Putin's uh, sort of friends, mercenary company, the Wagner Group, uh, they've been more supportive of Russia and the Russian invasion. Um, but really, if any country needs to worry about sovereignty, and uh, avoiding wars of aggression, then it's the African countries, because for many uh, years they were really destroyed. Many parts of the, the continent uh, were destroyed, and some parts still are, by uh, ongoing, long-lasting uh, wars of aggression and insurgencies supported from outside. So you'd think they would be taking a very strong line against uh, the Russian invasion on principle, and it's been mixed. Uh, but uh, if... China sees its inv investments in uh, African countries being uh, devalued by the disruptions caused by food crisis and consequent uh, migration crises, then that, that'll be another, uh, another reason to perhaps 
even try and uh, influence Putin uh, to end this this war. But I, I doubt that that's really going to be a decisive factor at the end of the day. Well, Daniel Treisman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Daniel Treisman, who's a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, a leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia. He's the author of a number of books on Russia, including The New Autocracy, Information, Politics, and Policy in Putin's Russia, and Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. And he has an article at CNN what Putin and she don't get about messy democracy. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. One more life.